This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. The new pandemic is raging with variants across the world. Whole countries go into lockdown. Hospitals overflow. In the background, the first waves of extreme weather arrive. In this show, scientists investigate how climate change will strike cities first and hardest. Can megacities create their own weather? Why will cities be many degrees hotter than the global average temperature we always hear about? It isn't just the heat. Flash flooding ongoing across much of Middle Tennessee thanks to record rainfall. You're looking at pretty much the last 12 hours training where a lot of these same cities and towns had rain band after rain band over the same locations, dumping a tremendous amount of rain. Widespread totals across Middle Tennessee of four to six inches. Keep in mind the bulk of this fell in just about a 12-hour time period. Nashville proper picking up just about 6.69 inches of rain. That's their two-day total. That's the second highest two-day total they've had since May of 2010. Our first guest, Matei Georgescu, explains new science showing cities distort the natural cycles of drought and rain. Expect to hear about record floods again and again, with no word from the weather reporters about why this is happening. We know unbearable heat and floods are coming to cities around the world, but everyone will act surprised as it happens Setting records used to be a good thing. It was about progress. In these times of a shifting climate, extreme weather records become the normal signposts on the way to a different climate. Keep low, stay well, stay informed. This is Radio EcoShock. Radio EcoShock. Large wildfires can generate their own weather systems. Can megacities change their local climate? We know cities get hotter than the surrounding countryside. A new study shows urban flooding will increase too. We get the scoop on tomorrow's headlines from the lead author, Dr. Matei Georgescu. He is Associate Professor in the School of Geographical Sciences and Urban Planning at Arizona State University. Matei, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you for having me, Alex. From your first degree to your doctorate from Rutgers, you've been studying relationships between cities and climate change. What kindled this special interest in you? It was actually quite personal, to be, to be honest. I used to live in, in New Jersey with my parents. Uh, I went to school at Rutgers. My parents moved to Arizona. I came to visit them one holiday season. At the time, in the early 2000s, they were living on the outskirts of the urban area. I came to visit them again one year later. They were no longer living on the outskirts. The metropolitan area had engulfed them in the northwestern part of the city. And so I started to ask the obvious. What are the implications of this really rapid and extensive urban growth? And from them moving to this area, my Ph.D. dissertation was born. And southern Arizona is really a desert environment. So why are you studying urban flooding? I'm studying urban impacts in general, not necessarily urban flooding alone. So cities can really uh, impact their regional environment in a myriad of ways. Most of the focus has been on temperature, but we know from earlier observational studies going back into the 1970s and afterwards that cities can also affect precipitation as well. 
precipitation is really a difficult thing to simulate properly using uh, state-of-the-art climate models. But we have this wealth of data that we've produced over the last several years, and we thought that an important question, considering that cities are increasingly focused on becoming more resilient, a lot of work is going in, into assessing the impacts of temperatures. Not that much work is going into trying to quantify what will happen with precipitation within urban environments. So it's a really important research gap that we identified and, and, and tried to examine in detail. Yes, you led a study about the urban heat island effect in 2014 in Penis, and you found cities will rise 1 to 2 degrees C above and separate from greenhouse warming expected globally. That's a lot of extra heat. Where does it come from? So urban areas add heat to their regional environment, their local and regional environment, really two general ways. First, it's just the transition from a previous land cover that includes vegetation to a land cover that really doesn't include any vegetation. It's devoid of vegetation. And the lack of vegetation means that the evapotranspiring potential of plants and gardens and trees and so on and so forth, that's gone. So that's an immediate warming effect. Second, uh, or I should say related to this, is the fact that urban areas are, are sinks of energy. They absorb incoming solar radiation. And by virtue of them being tall, you have these tall buildings, uh, the morphological characteristics and the distribution of these buildings, it prevents cities from cooling in the evening and nighttime hours. So emitted radiation during the evening, nighttime hours is actually kept within the urban canopy. This is the principal reason behind cities being warmer than their rural areas. Another important consideration that has to be mentioned is the way we, and when I say we, I mean us as in the humans, the way we utilize energy. For example, the utility of air conditioners, by virtue of the way they work, we take energy from inside our built environments, and we dump it into the ambient outdoor environment. So we're adding extra heat. Our transportation sector, we're adding extra heat. And so these are really the, the broad ways in which humans, in which cities, which are built by humans, modify the thermal uh, characteristics of their regional area. And your new paper, published in Environmental Research Letters, finds a second major impact of big human development changes to precipitation. The odds of extreme precipitation and urban flooding are increasing. Please explain how cities could do that. Yeah, to be completely clear, it's been well known for several decades that cities can impact precipitation. They can either increase precipitation or decrease precipitation. Uh, some of the earliest observational studies in the early 1970s really shed light on the potential mechanisms that are responsible for this what we do in this paper is try to characterize the effect of both climate change, the increase in greenhouse gases, simultaneously with urban growth. That had not been done before. So that's the new element that, that, that we bring to this, to this new research, which is important because for policymakers and planners and citizenry alike, everybody's interested in what the future climate might be not just due to urban development and not just to greenhouse gas-induced climate change. People live in cities, and so they're interested to know how the built infrastructure, in addition to greenhouse gases, might affect precipitation. The principal mechanisms behind this from an urban perspective are uh, there's a couple of 
physical mechanisms. One of them has to do with the urban heat island effect that we discussed a few minutes ago. And in general, cities are warmer than their rural environments, and this warm air has a tendency to rise over cities. And so this rising air provides essentially more energy to precipitating systems, thereby increasing their efficiency, leading to more precipitation. How do you define extreme precipitation, and do we have data showing it is already increasing in American cities? So there isn't one data-driven definition of extreme precipitation. It kind of depends on what metric that you want to use, and we didn't stick to one metric because that varies from city to city. And so we looked at different indices of extreme precipitation. We looked at the 99th percentile of contemporary climate precipitation, which is essentially equivalent to the four wettest days out of the year or the 95th percentile of, um, of contemporary precipitation, which is essentially equivalent to about the 19 or 20 wettest days of the year, and similarly for the 90th percentile. So we looked at each one of these different metrics to try to get a sense for the exceedance of these absolute values under a future climate that is also characterized by urban development. To answer your second question, yes, there is actually evidence of increased precipitation. If uh, we're looking at previous data, extreme one-day precipitation events have been increasing basically the land area that's covered as a result of these one-day precipitation events across the contiguous United States has nearly doubled uh, during the previous century. Uh, but we need information not just on what's happened in the past. We need information on what's going to happen in the future. This is particularly important for still developing cities. Phoenix is, as of today, the fifth largest city in the United States, still growing very rapidly. Uh, many cities in the western United States continue to grow considerably. And so they're thinking, they're, they're policymakers, citizenry, stakeholders are thinking about not just extreme heat, but extreme precipitation. Can you give us any example of a large city flooding where the excess precipitation it may be partly the result of the built environment itself? First of all, I should say that there's many such examples. One example that comes to my mind is a little bit uh, older, perhaps. It dates back to 2008 and 2009 in Atlanta. There was a precipitation event that stalled over the Atlanta metro region for several days and resulted, if I recall correctly, in not just a few inches of rain across the metro area, but I think up to a couple of feet of rainfall. It inundated the entire city. Closer to home here in Phoenix, I believe it was in 2013, Sky Harbor International Airport, uh, which is the one central location where uh, precipitation measurements are, are, are uh, kept. There are others. Uh, but it is the standard National Weather Service site. I believe they received something like three and a half inches in a six-hour period, so a very short period of time. The result of that was that all of the interstates were underwater, completely flooded, and cars were submerged. Everything was at a complete standstill. So this is happening more and more frequently across urban areas, not just in Atlanta, not just in Phoenix. We can think of tropical systems as well. For example, the situation in Texas with Hurricane Harvey a couple of years ago, and part of the reason why that situation became so uh, deleterious 
was because of the increase in impervious fraction. That water falls and it can't percolate into the underlying soil, and so it just accumulates. And so stormwater management becomes a very important consideration in terms of adapting future cities to the increased frequency and intensity of these precipitating events. So is the process of increased urban flooding in your study different from the large regional events like the massive floods happening as we speak in New South Wales, Australia? Unfortunately, I'm not familiar with the massive uh, flooding events happening in, in, in Australia, so I can't speak to that. Uh, but I can speak to the particular study that, that we undertook. So we conducted what are referred to as regional climate modeling simulations, which are a uh, mechanistic, a process-based way of taking into account the evolution of the atmosphere and its interaction with the land surface. So we account for things like temperature changes due to greenhouse gas-induced climate change, we account for things like urban development, how cities grow, and we account for the interaction between these two important elements. And this is really the innovation behind our work. It is not just that it will rain more, but it will rain more because of these two forcing agents that are interacting at disparate spatial scales. The effect of greenhouse gas induced climate change is certainly global, but if you tell the mayor of a particular city that averaged global precipitation by the end of the century will be X percent greater. That, that provides little uh, decision-making information for that particular policymaker. We need place-based information for cities across the world, including Australia, especially cities that are continuing to urbanize, where the complexities of these two processes are particularly unknown and the interrelationships between these two processes are particularly unknown. And a lot of your work looks forward to a future where cities continue to grow. Are we sure that's going to happen? I mean, maybe this pandemic signals a shift away from dense populations towards more distributed setups for people working online. What do you think? Yeah, that's an interesting question, and I think many of us have, have thought about what is the future workplace environment and what this means for social interaction, and I tend to believe the exact opposite. I tend to believe that once the pandemic is officially, uh, in terms of uh, actual health statistics and CDC guidelines and the appropriate WHO suggestions, once it's officially behind us, I think there's going to be a, such a strong impulse for folks to get back together. We are a social species. We interact, we innovate, we evolve together, not in solitary confinements. So I think if anything else, this will spur innovation to build cities, perhaps including options for decreasing density. But for the most part, I think density is a thing of the future as a result of the social system that we are. Does your study presuppose Western-style city expansion from a dense urban core through suburbs, or would the same effects on climate be expected, for example, in cities in uh, Africa or South America, where you might have slums and much less planning? No, that's a very good question. And so our urbanization development trajectories are guided by data that was produced by the Environmental Protection Agency. But that's a very important parameter that goes into our modeling effort. And so the actual specific horizontal and vertical extent or lack of vertical, vertical extent of cities 
is an important driver in modulating precipitation effects. And so it's possible that over some regions, the urban-induced signal will be greater, and it's possible that in other regions, the greenhouse gas-induced signal will completely dominate. In fact, what we've seen here is that there is an urban-induced signal, but the greenhouse gas-induced signal still plays a very important role, a greater role than the urban-induced signal. But the pattern of urbanization, the pattern of the transportation sector, type of cars that are used, the fuel efficiency, the building infrastructure, uh, type of uh, electricity, and do we turn our thermostat up a degree or down a degree, all of these are important elements that constitute the built environment. And together, they shape the the impact of the built environment on not just temperature, but precipitation and hydroclimate in general, environmental consequences as a result of the built environment. I would think the insurance industry has noticed an increase in claims from flood damages in cities. Have you heard anything about that? It's not really within my particular area of expertise, so I can't make any any intelligent uh, comment on that, unfortunately. But it would not surprise me if if that's the case. Uh, The United States, for example, is 85% urban. And so the majority of people live in urban areas. There's an increased frequency and intensity of of urban flooding, and the destruction of of property is obviously an important, in addition to the loss of life, obviously has a monetary value that uh, the insurance industry has to be aware of. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith with our guest from Arizona State University, Dr. Matai Georgescu. And we're talking about unique science showing cities may increase their own extreme precipitation events. And I find that your study connects with a new developing theme. We started out with global climate models, and the, the, the grid scale was very, very large. Cities couldn't be seen in them. And then I started seeing about 10 years ago more and more regional climate predictions. And now, finally, we're getting to the mega city level. I, I talked with Dr. Lei Zhao about his work on this, and he found uh, possibly cities could raise four degrees or more Fahrenheit in the coming century. How does that fit in with your work? So those results are very much in line with some results that we published in 2018 focused on continental United States cities, and so they're in agreement with those results. I think much of his work really adds to the foundation and depth of knowledge for cities outside of the United States, in particular cities across Africa and cities across Asia. And it really underscores the importance of repeating what we've done here for the United States globally. Right? What is the trajectory of urban development? You brought up the issue of Africa earlier. What is the tra- trajectory of urban development, be it more horizontally spread or maybe horizontally and vertically sp- spread, low density, high density? Now is an opportune time for the scientific community, together with policymakers, together with uh, architects, together with the insurance industry, to get together and to try to imagine what is the definition of a resilient city. I don't think that the scientific community knows what that is because the scientific community needs to be in contact with people on the ground. If the scientific community indicates that a particular city will be warmer by three or four degrees Celsius by mid or the end of the century, that in and of itself is not useful information. 
what's useful information is what is the impact of that thermal change for people and their livelihood? What is the impact in terms of health outcomes? What is the impact in terms of the energy bill? What is the impact in terms of uh, infrastructure damage as relates to flooding or other natural hazards? And so what I think we're building towards is a more unifying, more cohesive focus on environmental impacts rather than just thermal impacts, and certainly trends in that direction. And we're not alone here. The plants and animals are moving forward due to global warming, and we're changing their habitats, uh, often wiping them out. Do you think that cities can become more natural, more able to cohabit with the other species? I think that will be an essential component is to bring back nature into cities. And uh, some related work that we focused on, it was a different topic. It was focused on on urban agriculture and potential co-benefits associated with adopting and deploying urban agriculture at scale globally within cities, I think really sheds light on the potential to essentially add to ecosystem services, both in the financial sense, but also in the, in the life sense that you bring up by continuously laying down this pavement of concrete across the entire globe, we're disrupting habitats in unknown ways. And it's really unfortunate because we don't know what the end result of this impact is. Simultaneously, humans need to get back in touch with nature. That is, an und- We are a social butterfly as a species, but the propensity, the need to get back in touch with nature is an undeniable, at least in my opinion, necessity for it's an essential component of what constitutes a resilient city. I recently spoke with the director of the Tyndall Center, Dr. Robert Nichols, on Radio EcoShock, and he talked to us about sinking cities and the compaction of soils. And I have to think that the fact that we've withdrawn so much groundwater and tightened up those soils will also add to that urban flooding effect when the extreme precipitation events come. No, that's a fantastic point. I've done some work over Mexico City, and I've actually, as part of that work, I've, I've, I've been there and I've seen it with my own eyes where you have buildings and associated infrastructure now at an angle as a result of the massive urban development of what was previously Lake Texcoco and that part of Mexico. And um, it's just a shame. It's just a shame that this for lack of a better word, unregulated urban development has happened without any sort of insight into the what the potential impacts are. And although I mentioned Mexico City here, there are similar impacts across the planet. And, and I think what, what the scientific community is adding is essentially peeling the proverbial layers of the onion to better quantify the potential impacts, like we've done here by quantifying rainfall, Uh, greenhouse gas-induced interactions or what Lay has done in trying to, uh, with some of his most recent work in trying to better understand how artificial intelligence can be used in lieu of these regional climate models, which are very expensive computationally to, uh, to execute. So there needs to be some way from a data production perspective, you know, what is the stakeholder of today or of tomorrow going or expected to do, run these regional climate models over his or her own city? That is unfair expectation. So it's really an opportunity for the entire scientific community to kind of get together and ask the question, which begins with, 
what is the ideal city for our population, our geography, our, our socio-demographic distribution, and so how do we expect to get there, right? So defining a timeline of how we expect to get to this particular endpoint. This particular endpoint will vary with place, obviously, because different places have different expectations, different norms, different values, different belief systems, but the time is right for the scientific community. We're doing a lot of that at Arizona State University where we're getting out of our so-called uh, ivory towers, where we're working with policymakers, we're working with stakeholders because we're interested in what their questions are. We're not doing research for the sake of just doing research, but we're trying to do research that matters to people on the ground and that matters to cities of the future. And you've said that excess heat from cities will become a factor in overall global warming. Is this reflected in the work of the IPCC? Will the new AR6 report have something on this, or is this kind of cutting edge and it's not being employed enough yet? Uh, it, it certainly has not been employed. Through AR5, this has not been a consideration, and it's unfortunate for me to say that most of the work of the urban climate community has been deemed as a round-off error by the global climate modeling community. And that's just an undeniable fact. AR6 will take an important step in trying to incorporate urban environments. And I think that uh, there's this increasing realization across the scientific community that urban areas matter. The thermal impact of urban areas globally averaged is indeed a round-off error. That is also undeniable. But for the uh, farmer that lives in the Midwestern United States, providing information that the globe will be five degrees Celsius warmer by the end of the century is useless when it comes to cropping patterns or changes associating with cropping patterns that that particular farmer needs to make or that the mayor in Adelaide, Australia, needs to make in regards to what sort of energy investments need to be made, which depend on traffic patterns, which depend on uh, urban development, and so on and so forth. And so AR6 will take an important step in that direction. I, I very much look forward to what this means more, more explicitly and in greater detail. Well, I mentioned in the opening, and I'm wondering if it is correct to say that our massive cities with millions of people are generating their own weather patterns and impacting the climate as a whole. Can you clarify what that means? Are you referring to just people themselves? No, I'm talking about the way that we live, our overall structures, our transportation systems that you've been talking about. Are we really generating, in part, our own weather systems as fires do? So it's a little bit more difficult to say that we're generating our own weather systems, although there is evidence of modification of existing weather systems. So, for example, there's plenty of satellite data and there's been a lot of work by you know, Marshall Shepard and, 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 and many others that have shown uh, Robert Bornstein, shown classical urban-induced signatures. So you can see a, a particular thunderstorm that is moving to the southeast towards New York City. And New York City has a very extensive skyline, and the, and the thunderstorm splits in two as it moves across the skyline. So the city itself winds up getting no actual rain, but now locations outside of the city wind up getting rain as a result of the vertical extent of the city. So to suggest that the built environment itself is impacting local to regional scale climate, not just temperature, which I think is very well accepted now, 
with precipitation. I think that's very evident, and the data certainly shows that. When it comes to urban flooding, if we go on with business as usual, what do you expect as the decades progress? I expect cities to uh, essentially have to deal with a lot more flooding issues in the future, uh, similar situations to what we saw across uh, Texas a couple of years ago. Of course, these will vary because the storm systems that Texas receives are not the same storm systems that, uh, for example, Arizona might receive. Uh, But each city has its own particular resilience to individual flooding events and the what is a an extreme precipitation event across one geography is going to be different across a different geography much in the same way as a summer daytime temperature of 40 degrees in phoenix is actually not a warm day but a 40 degree celsius day in new york city is an abhorrently hot day right so it's all relative so it matters geography is very important But if cities do not include modifications to their urban infrastructure, incorporation of parks, for example, a decrease in impervious fraction, improved water management, diversion of water, or perhaps incorporation of additional techniques like permeable surfaces, parking surfaces that are spread all over cities that simply run off water once the sewers are filled, as they were in the 2013 floods of uh, Phoenix, Arizona, once those sewers fill, water has nowhere to go but up. Right? So incorporating new techniques like the permeable surfaces, for example, which maintains this hydrological connectivity, that water can then evaporate back into the surface and is maintained as part of the natural hydrologic cycle, is something that uh, collectively we as a community, including the scientific community, are going to have to consider very carefully, unless we want to deal with the repercussions of increased flooding, perhaps to the extent that we haven't seen before. Well, you've given us some important information here. We've been speaking with Dr. Matej Georgescu from the University of Arizona, and he's the lead author of the paper. The title is Precipitation Response to Climate Change and Urban Development Over the Continental United States. You can find links to that science in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. Matej, your work really is stimulating. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you very much, Alex, for having me on, and thank you very much for your interest in our work. It's been a great pleasure. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. We are investigating breaking science news on the impact of climate change on cities, home to the majority of humans. Are cities sustainable? Will the tide of humans into megacities be reversed during this century? If we cannot tame the variants of COVID, will people flee densely packed areas, becoming some sort of distributed network economy? The poorest people have no options. According to another new study in environmental research letters, global warming and population change both heighten future risk of human displacement due to river floods. That was published March 24, 2021, and led by Pui Man Kam of ETZ Zurich. That fits in exactly with the work of our first guest, Matej Georgescu. But outside of the new disease enabled by hotter temperatures, the biggest hit will be 
long-lasting, unbearable heat in most cities of the world. Cities in the United States, Europe, China, and Russia will feel more like the Middle East. Already, the poorest areas in many cities are regularly two or three degrees hotter than wealthier suburbs. That heat inequity is on top of the urban heat island effect. I see social unrest literally boiling out of the ghettos, favelas, and even inner cities of America during the heat waves already here, with much more to come. Let's explore the ugly realities of hotter times with one new study about cities in the American Southwest. You already know the poorest people in the world will suffer most as climate changes. But don't think about overseas. New science finds disadvantaged neighborhoods of America will heat, quote, 2.2 degrees C or 4 degrees Fahrenheit hotter than the wealthiest 10% on both extreme heat days and average summer days, end quote. And I think, or I wonder, that may be true in Europe and Asia as well. Climate change is just plain unfair, whether you call it thermal inequity or deadly heat. From the Geography Graduate Group at the University of California, Davis, we reached the lead author of a new paper, John D'Alessandro, more widely known as Jake. Jake D'Alessandro, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, African Americans, Latinx, and other minority communities are already hot about social and economic inequality, and now you say global warming will add unfair burdens as well? Yeah, this is true. It's uh, very unfortunate when communities of color and uh, communities of low income are disproportionately affected by excess heat, um, which is only being, being exacerbated by climate change and warming temperatures. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like that problem is going to turn around anytime soon. So we're hoping we can take the steps with our research to start to turn that problem around. I recently spoke with Dr. Li Zhao about his paper, Global Multimodal Projections of Local Urban Climates. And Zhao tells us during this century, the average city temperatures will rise about 4 degrees C or 7 degrees Fahrenheit, higher than the year 1900 temperatures. I wonder if the extra heat in the poor neighborhoods that you were talking about will be added to that general urban heat island effect. What do you think? What we have found and what we have found in some of our models is that due to these neighborhoods, not necessarily having the heat seek out these individuals, uh, urban heat certainly isn't looking for, you know, communities of color or low income to make their lives harder. But the inherent urban fabric, and by urban fabric, I mean the amount of impervious surface, the lack of vegetation will cause this thermal uh, difference to broaden. So with a, a paper that you were just referencing, if there's going to be an increase of 7 degrees compared to the 1900 baseline, we can anticipate that this warming will only accumulate greater in these communities of color where there's higher impervious surface. And that's kind of due to basically downwelling solar irradiance, having a greater amount of absorption versus reflection. And the basically uh, a percolation, so to speak, of this air temperature warming gradually throughout the day and cooling less at night. So I, basically, long story short, is that, yes, this will translate into these communities of color and vulnerable populations, unfortunately. What cities did you study and how did you define disadvantaged communities? So uh, we're using the term disadvantaged communities loosely, so I'll just address how we use the term, because there's many definitions that are out there, and I don't want to contradict any other studies that have been really good in um, 
bringing this topic and this issue to the forefront. We looked at basically the communities that had the lowest amount of income and the communities that had uh, the highest amount of Latino or black populations. Unfortunately, these communities kind of correlated together. So low-income areas tended to be where these high populations of Latinx and black communities were. We looked at specifically the 20 largest metropolitan areas in the southwestern United States, um, and we included the state of California as part of the southwestern U.S., although some people debate that California is not part of the southwest. We did not do San Francisco uh, strictly because of the marine time influence, that there really isn't a huge heat burden for even low-income communities there just because there's such a cooling uh, influence from the Pacific Ocean. So we did everything from San Diego, Los Angeles, Bakersfield, all the way to the Texas cities of, of Houston, Austin, San Antonio, El Paso, even Denver and Salt Lake City were included in our studies. And there's some great charts in your paper, which I would like people to have a look at. I'll put a link in my blog at ecoshock.org so people can find your paper. So when you find up to four degrees Fahrenheit more heat possible in poor neighborhoods, is that a general heat, say, over the summer, or does it change even more during heat waves? So what we found is that the, the pattern was actually consistent between an extreme heat event and an average summer day. We were hypothesizing before we began this study that extreme heat would lend itself to have a wider spectrum between the wealthiest and poorest neighborhoods in temperature. We actually found that not to be true. Nonetheless, even an average heat day, there's still this large thermal inequity and an unequal burden that these residents have to heat. So if, you were, if, for, if I could make an example and say you're in the city of Sacramento and you unfortunately live in a low-income area, and your city experiences a day that is going to be 105 degrees Fahrenheit or let's say 43 degrees Celsius, you're going to actually experience that temperature differently. Your neighborhood's probably going to be more like 45, 46 degrees Celsius. And then if you look more at the wealthier neighborhoods, because there's more tree canopy, more cooling infrastructure, those temperatures may be 41, 42 degrees. And the really unfortunate part of all this is the people that face the greatest amount of heat burden oftentimes have the least amount of resources to combat it or mitigate it. And by that, I mean they don't have the monetary or financial resources to have their electric bill go up 20 or 30 percent because there was a particularly hot month and they had to run their air conditioner more. Uh, they may not even have air conditioning. Uh, access to cooling centers may be limited, um, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. I know that's been a, been a big issue in Arizona where uh, people who did not have access to cooling in their own homes also didn't have access to these public spaces that would provide cooling. So, yeah, uh, basically we, we found that whether it's an extreme heat event or even just an average summer day, the thermal inequity and the thermal burden is still very, very broad. Doctors and epidemiologists say the dust go up a couple of days after a heat wave. It's called the harvesting effect. And they warn nighttime temperatures are absolutely critical. Did your study include night temperatures? We did include nighttime temperatures. Unfortunately, we were using a remote sensing data set that is not the best at using nighttime temperatures. So we use a, a satellite called Landsat, um, a operational land imager and thermal imager. And this provides data at a snapshot in time over an entire study area. While Landsat 8 does provide nighttime temperature, the sensitivity of the other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum does not have a capability to be sensed at night. So our equations and algorithms that are used um, and were actually created by NASA to create this brightness temperature and then Fahrenheit and Celsius temperatures are not as accurate and they don't provide as much of the variation that is actually found. So we were really only using a proxy. 
nighttime temperatures, I agree, are far more important for individuals experiencing heat waves, especially when it comes to heat-related sickness and mortality. Um, we are hopefully working on getting more data to do a more uh, robust analysis of nighttime temperature. In 2018, NASA and the International Space Station launched EcoStress, which is going to have a much greater capability of mapping nighttime temperature at the, at the metropolitan scale. Another option that we did not use, and this option also has a little controversy with it, is using weather station data, um, but you would have to use an interpolation technique to make a surface of temperature using weather station data, which also introduces some errors. Uh, again, long story short, that we did look at nighttime temperatures. However, our variation that we found, uh, we feel, is not as accurate as what the actual variation is, which is why we focus mainly on the daytime temperatures in our study. So did you look at historical data? I mean, have we already seen and recorded urban heat inequity in America? I presume we have. You know, it's, it's something that has been somewhat understudied. There has been studies on it, uh, particularly after the 2003 heat wave, actually, in Paris. So not necessarily the United States, but in 1995, there was a horrible heat wave that impacted Chicago. In 2003, there was the European heat wave that unfortunately really took a lot of individuals' lives. So this has been a process that has been mapping, never at the scale that we've done, that we've looked at so many cities and looked at so many um, neighborhood scales. And by neighborhood scales is we use the American Community Survey, which uses census track and census block group data to map out how individual neighborhoods are impacted by heat. I would say mapping urban heat is somewhat in its adolescence phase, as I would say is maybe with the use of remote sensing data, about 20 to 30 years old. But it has been mapped before, but we feel never at this type of scale and never with this type of analysis. Yeah, you mentioned the Chicago heat wave of 1995. Over 700 people died. And one factor, people in high crime areas were afraid to leave a window open so they could get cooler. Many elderly died in closed, overheated rooms. So maybe heat inequity is just part of the big picture of a really unfair society broadly. I would agree 100% with that statement. It's it, it's a piece of the puzzle, but it certainly isn't it. It certainly isn't the end all. A lot of the neighborhoods that you know we found had this unequal uh, thermal burden or thermal inequity also have an inequity when it comes to air quality, proximity to like Superfund and like environmental uh, sites that have been uh, has toxins and things like along those lines, as well as some of the social factors like crime and and uh, poverty that you just mentioned. And we know humans have a heat limit built into us around 95 degrees wet bulb temperature or 35 degrees C. If an inner city is hotter but maybe drier than the suburbs, maybe the extra heat matters less. I wonder, did your study factor in the combination of humidity and heat? So we did not look at the psychological perceived temperature or the real field temperature that you're referencing with how the humidity plays a role. In general, our cities all had low humidity values, with the exception of Houston and Dallas. So a lot of the southwestern United States have very dry temperatures, which gives you a little bit more of a threshold and a little bit, I don't want to say cushion, but an ability to cope with higher temperatures more if the air is drier. I think we've all heard the phrase, it's hot, but it's a dry heat. And that does ring true when it comes to comfort, but it can still weigh heavily on an individual as they experience this heat. Basically, to answer your question, we did not take humidity into account, but it definitely plays a vital role in this. When I talked with urban heat expert Matt Santamuris in Australia, he explained heat tolerance is partly based on past experience and 
expectations. I mean, the level of heat where people are hospitalized in London is just another day in Lagos, Nigeria. But we all have the same bodies. So I wonder, is it racial stereotyping when people expect Latinx folks, for example, could take more heat than white people? What do you think? You know, that's, it's interesting that you said that. Um, you know, I, first of all, like, it, you know, the same thing happened in Chicago. Like, that heat wave in Chicago may have been part of the course in Phoenix, Arizona. It is, they say, like, it, your body, when you move to somewhere like a desert, you t- it takes this, it's not until the second summer that you're really able to help to, like, almost train yourself for the heat. The human body is obviously amazing, and I'm, I'm far from, like, a, 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 a medical doctor that knows a lot about anatomy or anything like that, but I do know that it's almost like a training and detraining of your body. So if you've grown up in an area that's hot and you experience it, it doesn't necessarily have to do with your DNA, but it has to do with, like, how your body has, like, built itself to respond to heat. With that being said, extreme heat waves don't care how much you've experienced heat in the past. If there's going to be an extreme heat event, you know, it's not going to pardon you just because you're new to an area. Um, I think that the example you use with Lagos and London is a, is a very pertinent and very uh, and, and fits very well with the United States. You know, some of our temperatures that were being experienced in Albuquerque compared to Tucson, you know, Albuquerque's at, I, I believe, 1,700 meters above sea level and Tucson's at 800 meters above sea level, and then Tucson's also further south. So a very hot day in Tucson, if you're a resident of Tucson and suddenly you're experiencing an extreme heat day in Albuquerque, you very well may have had this uh, physiological training to cope with heat just a little bit better. But that doesn't mean you're not susceptible to having these heat-related sicknesses and, God forbid, mortality. Well, you're also a competitive runner. Did you have to retrain your body a bit to run in the heat? You know, it's interesting that you said that. Um, when I, I moved to Las Cruces, New Mexico, to do my ma- master's degree, and as, as a runner, it was the first summer I was there. I I struggled a lot, and you know, kind of my my own experience. I did get a lot more comfortable the second summer. But no, for athletes in general, I mean, it's almost like your heart rate is just generally higher when it's hot because your body's working harder to cool you. But yeah, that was my experience personally. So you studied the U.S. Southwest, which is a pretty hot place, and I look at your study as kind of a preview of the dangerous heat coming unexpectedly to cities further north as the climate warms. Hardly anybody in the northern hemisphere is going to be immune if global mean temperatures go up more than 3 degrees C in a century. That's over 5 degrees Fahrenheit. Would you agree that thermal inequity will become everyone's problem? You know, I, I do I do feel that it will become everyone's problem because with with the climate change uh, data that you presented earlier in our in our conversation, you know, that really hot day is now going to be like a cooler day. So if you're in a very nice community where you don't really experience a huge extreme heat event, you know, if it's going to increase 7 degrees Fahrenheit or 3 degrees Celsius, your neighborhood that was 42 degrees and maybe like not getting quite the brunt of a heat wave, even though you're still the coolest part of the city, now you're 45, 46 degrees Celsius. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's going to be everyone's problem. The one thing I would like to say, though, is for those of us who have the, are fortunate enough to be able to turn our air conditioner on, you know, not everyone has that luxury. And even with the warming of the temperatures, the luxury of having the AC is going to play a vital role. Um, if you're going to pay for your rent or you're going to pay for running the air conditioner and you only can do one or the other, you're going to pay for your rent. If that's just really can be so detrimental for your health, unfortunately. And it's something that we need to figure out so everyone can have 
be as comfortable as possible um, and, you know, avoid these heat-related sicknesses. But it will become everyone's problem, like you said. Absolutely. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex with our guest, Jake D'Alessandro, talking about climate and justice as we heat up the world. Jake, what factors make disadvantaged neighborhoods so much hotter than wealthy communities? That's interesting that you bring that up because it's not that they're just trying, it's not the heat is not seeking out any individual socio-demographic. It comes down to amount of green space, and by green space it could be anything from a park that's irrigated with a lot of grass to amount of tree canopy. Tree canopy is the best way to cool your city. Unfortunately, nothing is free in this. Uh, so you have to trade like water resources to have a lot of trees. Trees cool by shading. Trees cool by evaporation. So you can't just go to Phoenix, Arizona and make it a forest, or you can't go to Albuquerque and make it a forest. Also, lack of a smart building infrastructure. So there's like a lot of impervious surface, even everything down to like the albedo. And by albedo, I mean the amount of reflectivity. You know, if you have like black asphalt tar roofs and black asphalt concrete um, parking lots, those are going to heat up more. And those are much more common in these low-income neighborhoods. It just comes down to those two things, the urban fabric and the amount, amount and configuration of urban green spaces. I recall Matt Santamuris also measured big heat differences within a short distance because of what you were just talking about. It was over 150 degrees Fahrenheit on the upper deck of a car park in Darwin, Australia, in a sounding 65 degrees C. But underneath a nearby tree, the temperature was under 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Just planting trees could be big help. But as you say, we can't do that in some of the places we need it more. And trying to keep those trees alive in blistering heat waves is also going to be a challenge. So if we do nothing much, I wonder, Jake, would the real costs to society and hospitalizations and lost productivity be higher than trying to make some neighborhoods cooler for everyone? That's where policy comes into play because it, it is very costly. And these cities don't have these resources necessarily to be like, oh, well, I really need to you know, target all my entire city. I need to make every area that does not have shade. I need to create shade there. That's where I think heat priority needs to come into play. You know, since a vast majority of the hospitalizations and the sickness and unfortunate mortalities happen in certain areas in these groups, the cities need to prioritize those areas to prevent them. It's similar to what we're doing with inoculation for the vaccine of COVID-19. You want to you inoculate and help the people who are the most vulnerable. Now, you mentioned the trade-off of costs to cities. By prioritizing these areas, I think you can mitigate the cost as well as mitigating the detrimental effects that heat has. Well, the old standby for the crowded poor in New York City was to open a fire hydrant and let people get wet. It's so crude, but <laughs> we have to do something. What are some of the other things that we could do to help everyone stay cool in a city, including the poorest areas? It all starts with the amount of resources that you do have and allocating those. So I think the best way to do that is to look at where the areas are the warmest and start there. If it's an area and it's, let's say, it's um, the researcher that you mentioned in Darwin, let's say this neighborhood is experiencing 65 degrees Celsius temperatures. We need to start there. And, we're, and by start there, it's like, well, what are we going to do? Okay, well, what is causing the heat here? For example, it was on top of that parking garage where it was just nothing but concrete absorbing all that heat. What could you do to maybe make it a little bit more reflective? So, like, you change, like, the albedo of the surface just enough so instead of it being 65 degrees, now it's 62 degrees Celsius. And then it's like, oh, well, now let's plant a little bit of uh, drought-resistant um, tree, tree canopy. Maybe, maybe like even palm trees can provide somewhat of shade. Uh, or, or I shouldn't say palm trees, but drought 
tolerant species. And it starts with those two things. Those are the easiest. Those are the low-hanging fruit here. And next it goes into policy, like how can we make sure that if we can't mitigate the temperatures enough that people are still going to experience them, what type of cooling infrastructure can we provide? Can we provide more public cooling centers? You know, obviously we can't congregate in big crowds right now, but if you're in Darwin, if you're in Phoenix, if you're in you know, Riyadh, if you're in any one of these areas throughout the world, like if you're nowhere that, where it's the hottest, can we provide one area where people can go to get just a brief reprieve from this heat? And, you know, maybe all it takes is just like a couple hours of a break so your body can kind of re-regulate and you don't get as sick and you're not as susceptible to illness. Things along those lines. There's so many things that can be done, and, um, but it's going to take an intersection or a nexus between the researchers, the policymakers, the stakeholders, and, and city planners. Well, I think, too, we could change our building codes because the homes in North America and, and Northern Europe were built to keep heat in in the winter and not really to be as cool as homes, say, built in the Middle East or Africa. So now we have to use air conditioning. It's taking over. But when the electricity goes off during heat waves, which is common in California, the poorest suffer the most. Have you encountered any data on whether critical power goes off more or longer in low-income areas? That would be neat to know. You know, I agree 100%. I personally do not know anything about that about that data or how to access it. But now that you've mentioned it, it's something that I think needs to be included in our future studies. Like, I think that's, like, I should, I don't want to use the word phenomenal because this is, like, a very unfortunate subject, but that's a very, uh, a very important idea and something that needs to be addressed and at least at the very least, research to find out what neighborhoods get their power knocked off first when a grid gets overpowered. You know, a month ago, we had the freeze that happened in Texas, so kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. But they were, they were, people were, free, were unfortunately freezing to death uh, because of the opposite problem. And in California would have the same problem, but it would be because of heat instead of the cold. Um, I have not looked into the data at that, and I, I don't know where to access that, if it is publicly available, if it, it's going to definitely take some research. But long story short, I think that, that that data is very vital to the equation, and it's something that we need to look into personally. Well, another policy idea I'm just going to throw out there would be a heat equity tax uh, leveled by a city or a state to pay for the infrastructure we've been talking about to save lives in low-income zones. Maybe we could measure actual temperatures and levy the tax based on how much cooler upscale neighborhoods are. Do you have any thoughts as you work your way through this on how society can pay for the changes we need for thermal equity? You know, I, I, your idea is... is um is something that, you know, it would be, it's a, it's a tax that would maybe help balance everything out. And like that tax could go towards these disadvantages. What you suggested would be one of the very many tools in the, in the artillery for combating this problem. If you were able to somehow find or implement, you know, temperature gauges and readings throughout the city that can consistently collect data and show like, okay, like looking at throughout the, the daily or annual cycle, these neighborhoods are always hit hard, hardest by the temperatures. And these neighborhoods are always at the lowest end of the histogram of temperatures. These people who live in these areas where it's cooler, you know, they should, they maybe provide a, a tax, maybe there should be some sort of tax for the cooling. And it would go towards maybe smoothing the thermal inequity. So every resident has an equal chance at a comfortable and heat-related mortality and sickness-free life. Yeah, I could see that as the climate warms, we're going to find more people in impacted communities organizing against uncontrolled climate change or against the hot circumstances they're living in. 
Uh, maybe that'll become a social pressure point leading to protests and unrest. What do you think? I think it's a topic that is going to be uh, becoming more front page news, especially as we become more environmental. One, as we become more environmentally conscious, and two, as we kind of enter this mid-century portion and late century, where all these climate projections are going to start impacting everybody and then impacting the most vulnerable even more. I, I just, I would have to say that I agree that it, it's going to be at the forefront, and uh, the sooner we address it, the better to make everyone's lives better. Jake, what are you working on now, or what will you work on next? You know, our next step in our process is we're, gonna, we're actually going to look at modeling how we can cool a city most efficiently through the use of, you know, building intensity um, and tree canopy layers and, um, you know, more temperature data. You know, if we, we're going to look at, like, the city of Los Angeles, we're going to, like, look at, like, let's say the city of Los Angeles currently has 9% tree canopy throughout the city. If we were to up that to 30% and we were to put that extra 21% of tree canopy in the most vulnerable communities, what would be the temperature outcome at mid-century or even currently if we were to just implement that? That's what we're diving into pretty heavily right now um, it would be the next steps. We're also looking to obtain data like uh, air condition, access to air conditioning um, to see like how, how that correlates or what type of pattern there is between access to AC and simply exposure to heat. And then also, it looks like we got some new new ideas from our conversation just now of kind of looking into more data sets of who is disproportionately impacted by these blackouts, especially during extreme climate events. From UC Davis, we've been speaking with John or Jake D'Alessandro about unfair heat hitting the poorest neighborhoods. He is the lead author of the January 2021 study titled Dimensions of Thermal Inequity, Neighborhood Social Demographics, and Urban Heat in the Southwestern U.S. Jake, thank you for talking us through this. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. We all look forward to summer, but how about endless summer? Six months of the hottest days you ever lived. Tune in again next week as we explore more science of the coming times. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about this world. 